Hi, I'm Katrina, and I'm here with Sarah and Emily. And today we're going to talk about ethnographies, um, something that I particularly love about anthropology is that there's this specific genre of book you can read and they're very diverse about so many different topics. Hi, I'm Katrina and I'm here with Sarah and Emily. And today we're going to talk about ethnographies, um, something that I particularly love about anthropology is that there's this specific genre of book you can read and they're very diverse about so many different topics and they'll definitely surprise you. First things first, what is an ethnography? I won't blame you if you've never heard of ethnography before because it sounds complicated, but I'm going to break it down. It's a type of research method that seeks to understand the world from social relations and cultural perspective that involves anthropologists immersing themselves within a cultural group they want to learn more about. It's all about on-site and hands-on learning. To make it even simpler, the easiest way to think of it is through the four Ps. People, the subject population, place, location of study, problem, what is the research question, and practice, so how did the author conduct their study. So out of the four different fields of anthropology, mine is definitely cultural. Uh, you couldn't tell by my choice and subject for the episode, but I know that's not the case for everyone. So I want to know if either of you have heard anything about the origins of cultural anthropology. You know, I've definitely learned about it in class, and I'm going to be completely honest right now. I'm not remembering yeah, anything. Definitely use a refresher. Yes, yeah, so please refresh us. Yeah, so I didn't either until my Anthropology 101 class. And learning about ethnography is actually really helpful in understanding kind of cultural anthropology as a whole, the whole background. So in that class, we read about one of the most well-known anthropologists of the 20th century named Bronislaw Melanowski, and he was born in Poland in 1884. He kind of gets the clout of being the father of cultural anthropology because of his ethnographic methods he came up with during his studies of the people of Oceania. And for context, because I didn't know where Oceania was either, <laughs> it's the area that encompasses Australia and the surrounding countries. So interestingly enough, he sort of stumbled upon his research because his original plans were canceled due to World War I. But luckily, the Australian government gave him permission and the means to do ethnographic work in their territories because of his previous writings on aboriginals, and so he chose the Trobriand Islands in Melanesia. So the ethnography that started all of this was titled Argonauts of the Western Pacific, and it was published in 1922. Anthropologists today use very similar methods to those he outlines in this ethnography, and the most important of those is participant observation. So just for fun, if you guys could guess, what do you think part how do you think participant observation works? My guess would be that participant <laughs> observation is when the person conducting the ethnography has to actually participate in, like, the cultural practices of the community that they're observing. Well, it's almost like you've heard this. I know. Before. It's like I learned it or something already. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going with her. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Yeah, so it's pretty much exactly how it sounds. Um, the anthropologist must participate as well as, as observe. This requires them to partake not only in everyday life, but in celebrations and rituals as well. Think of it this way. If you're going to write an entire book on an unfamiliar group of people, you'd probably have to immerse yourself in their culture. Otherwise, you'd have 
absolutely no idea what you're talking about. And I want to give a fun example of this because it's kind of hard to picture. You can write about a college student's experience, like going to frat parties, but how much could you really write if you didn't go to one yourself? To understand it, you have to experience it. And even then, you'll never likely fully understand what the college experience is unless you are slash have been a college student. But participant observation is the best way to try. I think of my own weekend rituals, like planning out the night with my freshman year roommate, who's going to shower first and what outfits we're wearing and what time we're getting an Uber. I would have never understood any of that sort of thing until I got here. What about you guys? Yeah, I definitely think college is like a really great example for this because it really is so odd and so isolated. Um, I think especially when you're living with like bunches of people who are your own age, you come up with like almost like weird rituals or just like unspoken things that you do. Yeah. And you really never know about <laughs> unless you are here. Yeah. College is such a niche experience and that like, I, if you don't actually experience it, you would never fully understand. Like, <laughs> that's my kind of thought. Sorry. You would never fully understand it unless you actually experienced it. Like, you know, on a Friday night in one room, somebody's throwing a rager, but then in the other dorm room, somebody's watching a Disney movie. You know what I mean? And it's just like, or even like the idea of like sometimes getting ready for the night out is more fun than like the actual night out type of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And you would never fully comprehend all of that unless you were actually put in the situation. Yeah, you you definitely learn a lot and change a lot when you first get here. (laughs) So probably sounds super nerdy, but anthropology can be relatable. Uh, But back to Malinowski's methods, to understand a group of people as best you can, especially abroad, you have to be willing to go out of your comfort zone. So that's trying new food, doing new things, and participating in what you might call strange rituals, which may seem scary at first, but the only way to learn what this group of people feels and experiences is to actually participate in it. And I won't lie, this is not the easiest thing to do because we all hold our own inherent biases but in order to get the most accurate and fair data you have to be as unbiased and non-judgmental as possible and there's a name for these biases wait for it that we all have and it's called ethnocentrism so this is the idea that we think that our ethnic group is the most normal or the most right while all other ethnic groups are strange and weird and i want to make a point uh right here to also say that this is one of the best things that Anthro has taught me was that other people aren't strange or weird. They're just different. And in my first ever Anthro class that I keep referencing, <laughs> a shout out to Professor Haldane, we were taught to stay away from saying the words like weird or strange and instead say different. And it definitely helped me so much when looking at people around me, even like right here at school. Yeah, I think that's so true because even when you're saying that, it makes me think of all of the anthropology classes I've taken. And I think in every single one, my anthro professor has always stressed the importance of like cultural relativism, um, like trying to like deconstruct um, ethnocentrism and trying to make sure that you were looking at things from an objective perspective and not calling things weird and unnatural Mm -hmm. because it's not what you're used to. Yeah, I definitely think they place an emphasis on trying to like understand rather than judge. Yeah, I think we've definitely progressed a lot. Anthropology has sort of a dark history and, you know, studying people can be kind of a contentious topic because these are living people. But it's helped me a lot looking at the people around me. And instead of, you know, judging someone right away about what they're wearing or how they're acting, like I think, okay, 
Everybody has their own individual unique experiences. <laughs> That's always what I tell myself and that, you know, there could be a number of things that led them there and I have no idea. So Yeah, I feel like it's it's more applicable to everyday life than like you actually might think. Cuz mm-hmm. like you said, even coming to college and you meet people that like do things differently than you're used to, even if they like live like you know in the same region as you. It's just it's interesting to see how like Emily says bubbler instead of water fountain. Which is a bubbler. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I had to get used to that, but it's okay now. <laughs> Dude, people say, uh, people from New Jersey, they say online instead of inline. That's weird, too. I'm sorry, right? not Do you weird. say inline? <laughs> <laughs> See? <laughs> yeah. Still learning. Everything's a work in progress. Of course. So I think many of us obviously can relate to experiencing ethnocentrism, and we can also kind of label it as culture shock. Um, I've definitely experienced culture shock in a number of different, you know, ways, but it's a very real thing and can have a negative effect on fieldwork because it often leads to judgment and can impact the way in which an anthropologist learns about, perceives, and even explains to others about the culture they're hoping to learn more about. So, you know, if you're experiencing culture shock and that kind of affects your writing and, you know, your records of the people that you're studying, those are the records you're going to use to write your ethnography, which can have obviously a big impact because you're going to expect a lot of people to be reading it. So most anthropologists become more comfortable and confident as they meet informers, form relationships, and start to understand the ins and outs of daily cultural life. That's pretty much the goal is to make friends and create relationships because those people are going to be the ones that give you the most insight into their lives. So remember the first P we talked about, people? Considering the fact that ethnographic studies are performed on and written about people, their cultures, their thoughts and values, and their daily lives, with the intention of being published for anyone to read, there has to be a strict code of conduct or guidelines on how to do this work ethically. It can be really tricky when working with vulnerable populations, which ethnographers do. One thing I learned is that participants, in especially vulnerable situations, may think that you're there to help or save them when you're not there to do that, but rather learn about what's going on, why it's happening, and how it came to be. So this is why we have things like the IRB and so many other committees centered around ethics. The IRB is the Institutional Review Board, and it serves to review the methods proposed for research to ensure that they're ethical. They approve or reject proposals for conducting research on living subjects like ethnographies. They do a lot more things as well, but... They analyze risk versus benefit and also provide funding through grants. And if they determine a project is deemed appropriate, important, and worth conducting, it can go forward. So they also, you know, try to make sure that there are steps taken by the anthropologist to protect the rights and welfare of the human subjects. And these steps include getting permission from the governments, entities, and leaders of the cultural groups that you're aiming to study. You also need to have a plan for getting informed consent from the people you plan to observe, interview, and spend time with as part of your study. It's a lot to take in, but it's really important to understand the vulnerability part of all this talk about ethics. In the United States, we would consider vulnerable populations to be maybe the economically disadvantaged, racial and ethnic minorities, children, especially from low-income households, the elderly, the homeless, those with physical limitations, and other health conditions like severe mental illness. But something that 
Professor Haldane taught me was that vulner- vulnerability varies from place to place, and a large part of that is because they are socially produced. So let me give you an example. Sex workers are not naturally more vulnerable than a banker, but there are laws and social constructs that place them into a vulnerable position in society. I feel like that was something that like, you kind of know in the back of your head, but when you really think about it, it's like, whoa, like socially produced rather than, you know, these are like natural things. Yeah, that's very true um, because I guess in theory – sex work doesn't have to be vulnerable, but our society makes it yeah. vulnerable mm-hmm. because of the way that they're treated and perceived by society. Yeah, and there's, like, no safe spaces for them to work because it's so, like, hidden and, like, under the table. So, mm-hmm. like, that safe space isn't provided for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can get into that more when we talk about the ethnography that I want to highlight. But I also want to say that people can become vulnerable during ethnographic work. So... If you're interviewing someone about, you know, a contentious topic or something going on in their country or their culture, by responding, they could be placed in a compromising situation. So in some places, it's extremely dangerous to speak out about the government, for example. And if you're asking someone about that, you know, obviously you want to know, and that's going to be great for your ethnography and for people to read about. But it's very scary for someone to respond to that when, you know, their government could get a hold of that information. So I think also, as anthropologists, we must recognize that our work can reinforce the structure that creates vulnerability. So the ethical part in this is being aware of our own complicity in that structure. So as you guys can probably tell, this leaves anthropologists with a lot of power. And of course, there's always going to be power dynamics in different situations. But to engage in the most ethical work, thinking about those who can give consent and who can engage equally is very important. And some of the most interesting ethnographies end up being about those crazy topics like immigration issues, political turmoil, warfare, human rights violations. And the question kind of becomes, is your job to remain unbiased in research rather than make change? And what happens when you witness these type of things? So there's really no clear-cut solution to these types of issues that anthropologists can face, but it shows us how important it is to understand ethics. And another thing that I think is just absolutely crazy to think about that Professor Haldane, you know, kind of sparked me to think about was that ethnographers quite literally make their living off of other people's stories. So they build their CV, experiences, and livelihood on the research of others. So something that they have to grapple with is what do they have to offer the people that have given them their livelihood? Do they owe them? What do you guys think? That's a really tricky question. I remember um, I'm taking an archaeology course right now, and we read a chapter from a book that kind of presented a similar situation where the archaeologist was, like, digging in an area, but, and then she was, like, learning all these this new information about the people that used to live in the space. But then she was like, but how am I helping the people that live there now? Like, I'm on their land. I'm, like, you know digging up their old artifacts, but, like, I'm not actually contributing to them. So I guess it's a question of, like, how is your ethnography or your work, how is that going to help contribute to, like, society in the future? Like, are you just observing people for the sake of observing people because you think it's, like, fun and a good time? Or are you doing it to actually kind of, like, help the world, make it a better place, understand people better, and then share that information with everybody else? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely think that could be almost like a case-by-case thing where if an anthropologist decides to do an ethnography and is invited by those people, 
you know, to do that study, I think it's kind of up to them to, like, ask those tough questions of themselves because, you know, although it might be, like, you know, fun or interesting to go somewhere and, like, learn about a culture that you've never been in, um, like, you are, you know, making money off of them, like, maybe indirectly, but you still are, so it's, like, you know, how can you compensate them, you know, for that? Yeah. Yeah. And just being an anthropologist in general, kind of, you're in such a position of privilege. Like, your job is to study other people and to put yourself in these situations. Like, you're choosing to put yourself in, like, the feet of other people, in the shoes, not the feet. <laughs> <laughs> you're choosing to put yourself in the shoes of other people, but, like, these people don't have a choice. Like, that's their life. And they, they don't get the privilege of being able to decide whether they want to be in that situation or not. So you really have to kind of grapple, I guess, with the ethical side of all of that. Yeah, I think, like, almost weighing how important it is to, like, share, you know, the lives of other people and their history, uh, especially ones that we wouldn't ever really know about. I don't think I would know much about the Trobrian Island um, in Melanesia. If, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Malinowski didn't do that important work. So it's interesting to think about and, you know, weighing those different things and how complicit we are in the structure. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the ethnography that inspired me to kind of create this episode, I think we should talk about some of the ethnographies we've read to give some better context to all this. So for someone who's never read an ethnography before, even after all this talk, one easy comparison that I think we can make is Jane Goodall's study of chimpanzees. So it's sort of like an ethnography, but it's with animals. Another great one that I read was called Land of Open Graves by Jason De Leon, which is about undocumented migrants attempting to cross into the U.S. And so, you know, I'm almost positive it came at a really good time when, you know, our president, our past president was talking about uh, building a wall and things like that. And there's a lot of uh, uh, controversy over our border. So it's a great example of the fact that, you know, we don't have to travel very far to look at different populations and what they face. But I want to know what are some ethnographies that you've read. Um, when you said ethnographies, when we started this, Land of Open Graves was the first one that popped into my head because mm-hmm. we learned about that in our forensic anthropology class. Um, and also just if we were talking before about like how is like the ethnography kind of like contributing like to society and helping understand people better. And Land of Open Graves is a really great example of like really showcasing the struggle of, you know, crossing the border um, at the south of the U.S. and, like, how that's actually so difficult and shedding a light on the problems that the people face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one also popped into my head. And I think it's a really great example to go back to what you were saying about, like, does the anthropologist owe the people that they're studying something? And I think that one was a really great example of if you spread that out, like, that book, um, like reading that you might learn something that you didn't know was actually happening down there and maybe mm-hmm. you feel more either compassionate or maybe it changed your views about something. So I think that ties into what you were talking about before. Yeah, I think that was probably part of his goal was to, you know, make people more empathetic about that situation because, you know, again, there's a lot of controversy and, you know, people kind of land on either side, but you don't really know what those people are experiencing, um, especially people that are, you know, strongly against it. So, 
Yeah, I think Jane Goodall is also a really great example, mm-hmm. like for like making it make more sense in a more familiar way. Because even though I guess technically it's not an ethnography, like she did study the chimpanzees and kind of like their culture and how they like worked as a group. Um, and I just love Jane Goodall too. So. <laughs> Shout out, to yeah. Jane yeah. I feel like they're almost like so close to humans that yeah. you can make that mm-hmm. comparison. So. I took a class my junior year where I read a bunch of ethnographies, which is why I felt compelled to do an episode on it. And it was called Ethnographic Theory and Practice. So one of the best ones that I read that semester was called Street Corner Secrets by Svati P. Shah. And it stuck, it stuck out for me because my other minor, as I said, was women's and gender studies. So I'm always interested in anything that has to do with women, gender, sex, sexuality, and you'll see why it's one of my favorites to read. So to best understand any writing, it's also super important to understand the author. And Dr. Shaw is an anthropologist as well as associate professor at UMass Amherst. And her work is primarily ethnographic and her research interests include sexuality, urbanization, labor migration, materialism, and nationalism in South Asia. So just as a side note, a lot of anthropologists will focus on one certain area so like I know you guys know like some of our professors and like their areas of interest but yeah Shaw's is South Asia so that's why this book is all about sex work in India and she looks at the solicitation of sex work in three spaces within Mumbai so those spaces are all very different but all play a large role in India's informal economy so besides Brothels and streets, public day wage labor markets called nakas are where a large part of sexual commerce is taking place. So I feel like we know classic sex work in the United States definitely doesn't happen in a place like a day wage labor market, which I think you could almost compare to like, I don't know, Craigslist or like just, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. But... I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> well, I guess I guess it is interesting to um, look at the differences between sex work in India and sex work in the U.S. Because, um, based on what you've said so far, it seems like in India it's kind of like it's it's like they don't want to talk about it, but it's very kind of out in the open. Whereas in the U.S., nobody likes to talk about it, and like you keep it hidden and secret, and mm-hmm. and no one wants to to know about it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, so these women will flock to the Naka early in the morning to hopefully get chosen to do labor for someone for that day. It's almost like waiting to be picked for the kickball team in gym class, and it kind of all depends on how early you get there and how many others you're up against. So many of these women will be solicited to do sex work very discreetly on the side as they're hired for labor. So yes, they're doing that work, whether it be, you know, helping someone move something or helping them in in their house or whatever it may be, um, they will also be solicited to do sex work. And that's kind of like an unspoken part of these labor markets. And the main point that Shah's sort of trying to make is that many women migrate to the city of Mumbai from very underdeveloped rural areas to make a living by doing day labor. And the sex work that occurs in the same space is just another way they can earn a living. At the Naka, legal and illegal overlap, creating this dangerous path for these women to navigate each day, which is on top of all the values that are placed on them as women in India, such as marriage expectations and the concept of virginity. 
She's able to get at the deeper meanings of prostitution and the secrets that come with the way it manifests in Mumbai, specifically. And the takeaway of her work is that it humanizes sex workers. And I feel like we tend to get extremely judgmental about sex work and workers, and many people have this inclination to make them invisible, like we said before. And um, as a society in the U.S., I think we tend to do that especially in the in the u.s mm-hmm. <laughs> about sex work and even in this digital age with things like OnlyFans, it's a very judgmental uh topic so what do you guys think do you agree i do i think maybe it's becoming more like not like normal like with like only fans and stuff like you know maybe people don't like it but i also think it's becoming more normalized mm-hmm. and I think especially with like women's and like women's rights and like you know like my body my choice like um you see women like supporting other women who choose to use things like that because it is you know their choice to do it mm-hmm. but yeah I guess it, it does get a little tricky be- with sex work always because um it can always kind of delve into the side of human trafficking which is obviously not good and nobody wants that to happen but I guess also if, if a woman is making a choice that she wants to do this with her body and everything's consensual, ethically, is there anything wrong with that? If, like, if she wants to do it, this is her choice of making a living. <laughs> living, I sound <laughs> like <laughs> living. Um, and then, like Emily said, too, I think with stuff like OnlyFans, it's definitely becoming more destigmatized, yeah. but definitely still a very long way to go, especially mm-hmm. in the U.S. I agree. So I think we can agree that you know, we try to make sex workers invisible, Mm -hmm. but Shaw highlights sex workers to bring them to the front of the reader's mind. And you're kind of forced to grapple with the idea that they all have different struggles and experiences. And also that one policy for change won't fit all. And she she really leaves audiences with their own questions, like how sex work can possibly profit off of others' work and how they themselves think about sex workers. So as you can kind of gather, ethnographies can truly produce valuable work and provide unmeasurable cultural understanding. It's not only been such a large part of my education, but how I view the different people around me, and I'm so glad to be able to share it with you all. That's pretty much all I have. Yeah, that was really interesting. Ethnographies are such an interesting topic that I didn't know about before taking anthropology classes, so it's really interesting to learn more about them. Yeah, I definitely want to give them more time and like actually read more of them because I do think you learn a lot from them mm-hmm. and it's just like so different from like a normal book. Yeah. I have a lot of suggestions for you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Katrina. <laughs> for this episode, I would like to thank Professor Hilary Haldane and Professor Sarah Reedy for all of their help. My one source for this episode is The Ethnography, Street Corner Secrets, Sex, Work, and Migration in the City of Mumbai by Svati P. Shah. Our music is Find Your Way Beat by Nana Quabena from the YouTube Free Music Library. Our cover art is designed by Katrina using Canva. Thank you to Michael Bachman for editing and producing our episodes. Thank you to the Quinnipiac Podcast Studio for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Anthrophiles, and we'll see you next time.